Good morning. My name is Brian. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, very thankful to have the opportunity to preach this morning. This is a, a new thing for me, so, so bear with me this morning. Uh, if you're just visiting with us today or you were out last week, we are on the second week of a four-part series looking at the book of Jonah. I have looked for the book of Jonah many times in my Bible over the last few months in preparing for this. It's a little difficult to find, so if you want to find your Bible and start turning there now, uh, that might save you the, the hassle. Uh, we'll be looking at that in just a moment. Uh, last week, we looked at chapter one. Jonah is a book that has four chapters, so it divides out very evenly as we look at it over four weeks. Uh, Pastor Matthew preached last week about Jonah and his attempt to run away from God and his call on his life. And as we saw last week, Jonah's attempt to run away was in vain as he wound up bringing God's judgment on himself and on the sailors that were with him, and ultimately he was cast into the sea. As Matthew preached last week, we saw that God's judgment was not a judgment of wrath and condemnation, but rather it was a storm of discipline meant to bring Jonah back to himself. God sent a storm to correct, to guide, and ultimately to restore Jonah back to following God instead of running away. And that is where we pick up the story this week. So hopefully by now you found the book of Jonah. Uh, We're going to read the second chapter of Jonah. We're actually going to start in chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that you would illuminate these words of the book of Jonah. I pray that you would help us not to be distracted by the spectacle of a prophet praying in the belly of a fish, but that we may see you. Help us to see your character, the wisdom of your reproving judgment, and the depths of your loving kindness and your mercy toward us, even when we don't deserve it. I pray that our hearts will be turned toward you this morning, and that we may celebrate and display the beauty and glory of the person of Jesus Christ, even through seeing 
your sovereign hand at work in the prophet Jonah's repentance. Help me as I preach. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as a way of introduction, let me tell you a true story from my childhood. It'll all make sense in a few minutes. Uh, At the end of the summer when I was 11 years old, uh, I went on an overnight camping trip with a church group that I was a part of called Royal Ambassadors, or RAs. And for those of you not familiar with the Southern Baptist wing of Baptist culture, uh, the RAs was a program that predated Awanas, and it was segregated by gender. So there was royal ambassadors, or RAs, for the boys, and there was girls in action, or GAs, for the girls. So we went on a camping trip uh, somewhere on the west side of Atlanta uh, at a state park, and uh, during some unstructured free time on the afternoon of the second day, my friend at the time, Michael Roper, and I uh, decided that we would go walk for a walk in the woods. We went me- meandering down this little creek, and uh, I don't know exactly how we spent all that time, but I remember at one crucial point that Michael looked down at his watch, and he realized that we'd been gone for way too long, and we were probably going to be late for dinner. So at this point, being the brilliant, precocious 11-year-old wayfinder that I was, Uh, I decided to offer a little suggestion. I said, it seemed like the river had a little bend in it, so why don't we go back that way? Michael hesitated a little bit, uh, but in the end, my confidence won out. And uh, as you might imagine, uh, my navigational skills were a little bit lacking. And uh, about 30 minutes later, we found out that we were were lost. Uh, And so as the panic began to set in for us, we wound up coming to a place where we were literally running through the woods, just yelling out, Daddy, Dad. Both of our dads were back at the campsite. Uh, After doing this for maybe 30 seconds or a minute, uh, Michael was the one who actually suggested, hey, we should, maybe we should stop and pray. And so the two of us walked forward just a few more steps, and there was this area, there was a little clearing, and I remember very distinctly the afternoon sun was, late afternoon sun was coming in at this point, and uh, we knelt down, the two of us, and we offered just a very simple prayer. We said, God, help us get out, help us to find a way. And so the two of us stood back up at that point, and we felt a whole lot better about the situation. We walked forward maybe another minute or two, and we came out upon this, this long, long, long gravel road, and it seemed like it was abandoned. But, I mean, literally three, four, five seconds later, a police car um, started to roll up. And uh, the officer, we flagged down the officer, and he pulled up and said, you boys are actually really lucky. This road is closed. It's been closed for years, and uh, I don't even come this way. I just happened to, for some reason, be, be patrolling it. And uh, he, he <laughs> there you go, right? Uh, and so he, uh, after some confusion, he put us in the back of the police car, and uh, he managed to get us back to our campsite where our dads had assembled an entire search team at this point. Uh, the both of us wound up not staying that evening and, and going back home early due to the situation. Um, so <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I tell that story for two reasons. One... Uh, It's one of the most clear moments in my life where I can really distinctly remember crying out to God in true despair and helpless to save myself. And despite my foolishness, I believe that God heard me and he's the one who saved us. Uh, And secondly, 
I, I pray that that is the one and the only time that I ride in the back of a police car. <laughs> Generally, I wouldn't have been looking for to ride in the back of a police car, right? Um, and I even remember the officer radioing and referring to us as juveniles, which in my mind I equated with juvenile delinquents, you know. So I, I didn't know if we were in trouble there for a few minutes or not. Um, and I also learned that you can't open the door from the back of a police car, uh, which was a bit of a surprise. You're helplessly along for the ride, right? Uh, but regardless, I was really excited to be riding in the back of that police car and not lost in the woods, right? I have three points for us this morning as we look at the Jonah chapter 2 and the, the prayer of Jonah in the belly of the fish. Uh, point one is God's judgment leads to God's mercy. Point two, God is God alone. And point three, salvation is God's. The point one, we'll be looking at verses 2 through 7 for this point. So my foolishness, obviously, is what got us lost in the woods. But for Jonah, he deliberately attempted to run away from God. As we saw last week in Jonah 1.3, it says, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah was disobedient to God's call, and God's corrective judgment was in full force as the storm raged around him and the waves lapped up against that boat and eventually his body as he flailed helplessly in the sea. He says here in this chapter in verse 3, For you cast me into the deep. So despite the sailors' actions and the casting of lots, Jonah recognizes that it was God's action that brought him to the place where he was flailing in the sea. This identification of God as the main actor is a huge focus in the whole book of Jonah. We saw last week that the word of the Lord came, the Lord appointed a storm, and now... At the end of chapter 1, the Lord appoints a great fish. And we'll see in the future chapters that the Lord will appoint other things, such as a plant and a worm. Uh, So God is the main actor. And Jonah recognizes this in the midst of all that is going on in the storm and now in the belly of the fish. And clearly Jonah had no ability to save himself in the water, right? Without intervention, he was going to sink to the bottom of the sea. As we start to look at the text here, it's important to point out that this prayer of Jonah's is in poetic form. It's highly organized and it's beautifully crafted. I would argue that we can see two stanzas start to emerge here, two main stanzas. One of those is verse 2 through 4, and then verse 5 through verse 7. And then there's two verses at the end, verse 8 and 9, which are my second and third points that are a type of refrain with two complementary ideas. Uh, the timing and the, of the writing of the book of Jonah and even the authorship of the book of Jonah are up to some scholarly debate. It's a little unclear. And so there's interpretations regarding Jonah's prayer that vary a little bit as well. Uh, some people tend to take a more literal approach that this is the prayer that he prayed while he was in the belly of the fish while other people tend to think that it's more of an add-on because it's in poetic form, it's a break from the prose of the rest of the book. Um, Regardless of the timing, we can all say that Jonah was in peril, for sure, and that God saved him. So Jonah recognizes his peril here in verses 2 through 7 in two different ways. One is at this physical, mortal level, and the other is a spiritual and eternal level. 
as we look through the text here, we can see in verse 2, it says that he was in distress. In verse 3, that the flood surrounded him. In verse 5, the waters closed in to take his life. And in verse 7, he even says that his life was fainting away. So physically and mortally, he recognizes that his life is about to end. I can imagine Jonah just physically struggling in the water, right? He's fighting against the waves. He's losing his strength. Uh, Maybe the storm is continuing to surge for a minute as he's at the top of the water. And then he began to literally sink into the sea when the storm calms, right? And he's losing oxygen on the way down, recognizing at some point that he's reached the point of no return. Uh, So Jonah's got this whole physical death thing that's about to happen. But at the same time, Jonah is really aware of what he's done, which is to run away from God. And he's brought God's judgment upon him. And he recognizes that he's separated from God and he's in literal spiritual peril as well. To support that, let's look at the text again. Verse 2, he says, In the belly of Sheol, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. In verse 6, he says that, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And perhaps most poignantly on this spiritual front, we look at verse 4. It says, I'm driven away from your sight. So as Jonah is experiencing the panic of his life about to end, he's also aware that more severely, his hope of relationship with God is fading and that he's turned far, far away from the path of an obedient prophet that he previously walked. So it's in the midst of this impending spiritual and physical doom and despair that he cries out and returns to the Lord. And we see that in a few places. Verse 2 again, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And down in verse 7, I remembered the Lord. The Jonah's seed of faith, only through the power of God, sparks back to life and he remembers God. What's really clear about this prayer are the numerous parallels to the book of Psalms. Charles Spurgeon was preaching on verse 4, and he said this, There's one thing about Jonah I want you particularly to notice, that as his faith made him pray, and made him pray to the Lord his God, his faith made him deal familiarly with the Holy Scripture. He had but a small Bible compared with ours, but he had laid much of it up in his memory. Evidently, he loved the book of Psalms, for his prayer is full of David's expressions. Kindly look at Jonah's prayer. I think I am right in saying that there are no less than seven extracts from the Psalms in that prayer and its preface. End of quote. So I've got some slides prepared here. Uh, There's some parallels, a lot of parallels to the book of Psalms. For the sake of time, I'm just going to look at a few of them to run through them really quickly. Um, Psalm 120, verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Jonah 2.2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Psalm 88, verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Jonah 2.3. For you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Another, Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress... I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. 
Jonah 2.7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Two more here. Psalm 31.6, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Jonah 2 verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And finally, Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people. Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah's choice of words and phrases shows not just a rich understanding, but as the psalmist said, Jonah has truly hidden God's word in his heart. Despite the despair and doom that he faced physically and spiritually, he was able to recall the truths of Scripture in the moment and to rejoice in the Lord. As we look at Jonah's repentance here in these verses, we also see that he focuses twice on turning to the holy temple as he seeks God. And this is the end of those two stanzas, which is why I would say it breaks up from verse 2 to 4 and 5 to 7. At the end, both times, it says, holy temple. And the, uh, the focus of him longing for that temple, at the time of the old covenant, the temple was the interface with which the people would interact with God. And so it's very natural that as Jonah looks to return to the Lord, that he would turn his attention toward that temple. And verse 4 in particular holds a beautiful example of Jonah's faith in the midst of this turmoil. It says, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Here's Spurgeon again on this. Here is Jonah in such a wretched condition that he says, I am cast out of your sight. And yet, despite this, he declares, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The huge Atlantic wave comes rolling on. It sweeps not only over the feet and breast of faith, but it rises far above her head. And for the moment, faith seems to be drowned. Wait an instant. And with her face ruddy from the wave and her locks streaming from the flood, faith lifts up her head again and cries, yet I will look again to your holy temple. If we have faith... There is that in us which overcomes the world, baffles Satan, conquers sin, rules life, and abolishes death. All things are possible to him that believes. So God's judgment is what placed Jonah in the sea. But as he's attended all along, God has done this so he can show his mercy. Jonah is less the actor at this point and much more the recipient of this process as he repents and he calls out to God, and of course, God saves him. Jonah 1.17 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. As I look at this prayer of Jonah, I know we just talked about the fact this is a prayer, a prayer of lament in some ways, a prayer of, of confession. And I think it is. But what I read overall, looking at the context here, and Jonah praying from the belly of the fish, is I read a prayer of thanksgiving in many ways. Uh, I tend to agree with the pastor, Pastor John Piper, uh, that Jonah recognizes during this prayer that he has already been saved. This is a prayer of thanksgiving for a rescue that has already been accomplished, or at least it's already begun, right? Jonah's despair occurred while he was still in the waves, and he cried out to God, his prayer of lament. Maybe it was a simple prayer, help me God. And he was saved now through the fish, just as I had that surprise rescue from a police car, a car I normally wouldn't have been looking to ride inside of, uh, 
you know, Jonah recognizes that this act of being swallowed up in a fish is God's sovereign rescue. Jonah's rescue also comes in stages in many ways. We see that at the the end of chapter 1, he's swallowed up by the fish that God sent. And then at the end of chapter 2, he's vomited out, perhaps as another stage in his rescue. The riding in a fish is not exactly a comfortable form of salvation, but God uses it to preserve his life and to correct his path and send him back to the course of being a prophet and obeying God. God's will and plan for Jonah will not be thwarted, and he uses the means necessary to correct him, to save him, and ultimately through that to save others, as we'll see from Trevor next week in chapter 3. Likewise, for us, the process of salvation in our lives includes two stages, justification, which is being made right standing before God, as well as sanctification, being conformed into God's image. Sometimes this process may not be entirely comfortable, and it may come in stages. We must trust God and obey his call, even in the midst of trials, uncomfortable moments, and times of waiting. And we certainly must submit to God's restoration process when we're repenting from sin and trust that God is working all things for our good and his glory. Verse 6, Jonah prays, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Notice again, the action is God's. You brought my life up from the pit. Again, God is the actor. God is the one who casts him down into the deep, and God brings him back up. God's judgment leads to God's mercy. He's driven away from God's sight, but his prayer comes in to his holy temple. God's judgment leads to to God's mercy. And that ending there in verse 6, O Lord my God, it can be transliterated from Hebrew as Heye Yahweh Elohe. So it's a sort of rhyming wordplay in the poem that intertwines Jonah's life really closely with God and God with himself. It's as if Jonah recognizes that the only life he has left is through Yahweh, his God. So Jonah was judged justly. Jonah repents. God saves him. God, in his sovereign goodness, uses his judgment against Jonah to turn Jonah's heart back to himself. Without God's judgment, there could be no mercy. So we must thank God and praise him for both his righteousness leading to judgment and his love that gives us grace, neither of which are in conflict with each other. In fact, as we saw just last week, God's judgment is meant to lead us to repentance. God's judgment leads to God's mercy. The two quick points of application for us from this section. Just as Jonah's heart is turned to gratitude, apparently even while he's in the belly of the fish, our heart should be turned toward God in gratitude as we recognize our salvation. Despite challenging circumstances, especially when repenting from sin, like Jonah, we should have an overflowing of thankfulness. God has saved us in Jesus Christ And as a result, our hearts should overflow with that thankfulness. And secondly, this thankful prayer, as we saw, is filled with references to the Psalms. Brothers and sisters, we need God's word hidden in our hearts so that we can indeed be thankful in times of darkness. We're in need of reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it, sharing it with each other in our community groups, in our triads, 
or just informally as we do life with each other, we need God's word. Point number two, verse eight, God is God alone. Verse eight says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So as we look at verse 8, it's really easy to lump generically the idea of idolatry and everything that we think we know about it into the term. But I would argue that if we want to look at the historical context of the book of Jonah, it becomes really important that we know what the author intended to communicate to its original readers. This book would have been read by the people of the kingdom of Israel and probably by the people of the kingdom of Judah also in the time of the split kingdom before the Babylonian captivity. Um, Just as Matthew mentioned last week, the only other place in the Bible that mentions the prophet Jonah is in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 27. And as Matthew said last week, Jeroboam II was the king at that time. It was a time of great riches and excess financially, but spiritually, the kingdom was pretty bankrupt. Despite the outward appearance of obedience to God, the people's hearts were far from him. And despite, as Matthew said last week, God's goodness to Israel from Jehu's work four generations down and wiping out the prophets of Baal, the scriptures tell us specifically that Jeroboam II followed in the footsteps of his ancestor, Jeroboam I. Second Kings 14.24, it says, And he, that is Jeroboam II, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin. So rewinding in time for a minute, let's look at the life of Jeroboam 1, just briefly. And uh, he was the first king of the kingdom of Israel split from Judah. Uh, He had just become king, and he had kind of built up a kingdom for himself. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, looking at verse 26 to start, we read, Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Ahijah, a blind prophet, addresses these issues two chapters later in 1 Kings 14, 7 through 9. He says, Go tell Jeroboam, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. And then in verse 16 it says, And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. This legacy of of Jeroboam and his idolatry, it's on repeat throughout all the books of Kings. And we see that Jeroboam, too, not only shares his forefather's namesake, but he directly continues his legacy of idolatry. All that to say, Jonah was a prophet in a time of great rebellion against God and active idolatry. 
So this comment about worthless idols and vanities is not a random comment, but it's really applicable to the audience, and it's at the heart and intent of him writing this book, I would say. So back to our text, verse 8, to wrap this point up. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. The two Hebrew words used in this phrase, worthless idols, have nearly identical meanings. One of the words means vanities, and it's that term that's used in the book of Ecclesiastes, such as in the phrase vanity of vanities. If you've ever read the book of Ecclesiastes, you probably know the term we're talking about. Uh, The other word means vanities or falsehoods, and it's the same word that's used uh, in regard to... um, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor in Deuteronomy 5.20. So by using these two words in conjunction, Jonah is saying that idols are vain vanities or perhaps false falsehoods. It's a double falsehood in some ways because not only do idols steal our attention from the one who deserves our praise, but they even take away our ability to be shown mercy. He says at the end of the verse here, those who regard idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's as if Jonah is saying that following an idol is so far off base that you remove even the hope of being shown any mercy. So vain vanities that remove the hope of mercy. There's no hope in idols. John Calvin quotes Augustine in his commentary on Jonah, saying, Men in vain weary themselves when they follow their own inventions, For the more strenuously they run, the farther they recede from the right way. And Calvin goes on to say, God alone possesses in himself all fullness of blessings. Whosoever then truly and sincerely seeks God will find in him whatever can be wished for salvation. But God is not to be sought but by obedience and faith. Whosoever then dare to give themselves loose reins, so as to follow this or that without the warrant of God's word, recede from God, and at the same time deprive themselves of all good things. Brothers and sisters, this morning, consider the possibility that you may have an idol in your own life. Certainly, we no longer bow down to graven images in our culture, but what things or ideals are you placing your hope in? Do you have what Calvin just called loose reins in your own life? What are you looking to for your fulfillment? What's the measuring rod for your soul? Don't forsake your hope of mercy and waste your life. The prophet Jonah in his prayer urges us to place our hope in God alone, not in the whims of culture, not the fleeting pleasures of the flesh, not the deceptiveness of riches, but in God alone. Which brings us to point three, verse nine, salvation is God's. Verse 9 says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah turns his attention away from false hope in verse 8 to the only source of hope in verse 9. It's a miracle, obviously, that Jonah was saved. Staying three nights and three days in a fish made that all the more clear, right? Many ask how it's possible that Jonah lived inside the fish. Some people get really bogged down on this, wondering if maybe it was a whale, or maybe it was some extinct big fish, or they're contemplating how an oxygen bubble was trapped in the inside of a fish. I would offer that it's, it's just not possible. 
for Jonah to have survived outside of God's sovereign power to control nature and to supernaturally preserve Jonah's life. Some scholars even suggest that maybe Jonah was resurrected. But just as we looked at Jonah's peril both physically and spiritually earlier, I would say again that the greater miracle than the preservation of Jonah's life is the salvation of his soul, the fact that there was a restoration of himself to God. Remember, he just tried to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord a chapter ago. But suddenly, as the end nears, Jonah's heart was regenerated. He turns a full 180 degrees around and cries out to God, who he had just tried to flee from. Salvation is an act of the Holy Spirit. It's initiated by him alone to cause depraved sinners to desire a regenerate heart, leading to repentance. This repentance leads us to thanksgiving, as Jonah prays, and as we will see next, an eagerness to obey God and his calling. He says, what I have vowed, I will pay. So Jonah's heart at some level is changed as he does indeed go on in Jonah chapter 3 to follow through with God's calling, and he preaches a message of coming destruction to the Ninevites, just as God instructed. And the irony of the book of Jonah, as we'll come to see, is that while Jonah is thankful for his own salvation and mercy, he's much less thankful when he sees that in action for a people that is not his own. And Trevor will be preaching to us about that from chapters 3 and 4 over the next two weeks. Did Jonah expect, expect perhaps to die when he went to Nineveh? Did he think that after experiencing such a storm from the Lord that maybe God was not going to be gracious to the Ninevites after all? We don't learn exactly what was in Jonah's head at this point, so it's hard to say what his motivation was, but Jonah prays that he will pay what he vowed, that he will follow through with his call as a prophet and obey the Lord. And I would say he can do this because he recognizes here at the end that salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's Spurgeon again. If you had to save your neighbors, you might sit down and do nothing. But since salvation is of the Lord, go on and prosper. Go and preach the gospel. Go and tell the gospel everywhere. Tell it in your house. Tell it in the street. Tell it in every land and every nation, for it is not of yourself. It is of the Lord. End quote. Because God owns salvation, we're freed from the burden of having to save others. And my friends, this shouldn't lead us to be the frozen chosen. It frees us to share the gospel openly, to share with others plainly what Jesus has done for us and how important he is for us. As we come to a close, let's look at these final words here in a little more detail. In many ways, this phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord, is a summary of the book of Jonah and even of the entire Bible in many ways. The phrase, salvation is of the Lord, that wraps up this prayer, is all found in only two Hebrew words, and those words are yesuata Yahweh. The closest English phrase that we could put together to shorten that and have the same meaning would be salvation's gods. It's not that salvation comes down from God or salvation is gifted from God, but rather the phrase means salvation is God's. It's his prerogative to save It's his power only that can save, and it's his initiative only that can cause the process of salvation through faith. This realization crushes any pride that Jonah may have had 
such as in chapter 1 when he says, I am a Hebrew, it crushed the pride of the Pharisees who became bitter at Jesus' refusal to play along with their religious games. And it should crush our pride also. We have no ability to save ourselves. It's God's power only. As we look at this last phrase also, the remarkable foreshadowing found in the text is that Jesus' name is Yeshua in Aramaic, which means salvation, and it's derived from the same word. I I find it profound to see these two words together that have so much meaning. Yesuata Yahweh. Salvation is from God. Jesus' name means salvation. Jesus is that salvation for all humankind and all of time. Jesus himself makes a mention, as we saw in our scripture reading this morning, to mention the sign of Jonah, and he compares himself directly to Jonah. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that Jonah serves as a type of Christ. I'll read this verse one more time, Matthew twelve forty. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's life serves as a shadow that points to that ultimate fulfillment found in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Jonah, in some ways, bore the brunt of the punishment at sea by volunteering to be cast overboard, and he was buried at sea for three days and three nights, only to be resurrected again on dry land. Only by a direct physical miracle could Jonah have survived in the fish for this long, similar to the miracle of Christ being raised from the dead. Like Jonah's despair at being separated and cast out of God's presence, Jesus would feel entirely separated from God, suffering physically and spiritually as he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ experienced the very wrath of God directly upon him in this separation. Unlike Jonah, however, Christ had not rebelled and run away from God. He had not brought others into his judgment, but rather he ran to God in a time of trouble, and he willingly bore the punishment that he did not deserve for our sake. My brothers and sisters, in our despair and our sin, even while we were sinners running from God, God alone has provided salvation for us through the person of Jesus Christ. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and that salvation has been made perfect through Jesus Christ. If you are a believer here today and you're in sin, you do not need to look again to the temple, but you can look again to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't set your heart on any other false hope that might be distracting you. But remember that idols are vain vanities, and salvation comes from God alone. So seek first his kingdom. With a voice of thanksgiving, offer your body up to God as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship. And may we, like Jonah, have the word of God deeply rooted in our hearts, so that in times of despair, our hearts will be turned back to God by the truth of Scripture. If you are in a storm or a fish today, look again to Jesus. 
If you're here this morning and you haven't believed in Jesus, if you haven't repented and confessed your sins and put all your trust and hope in him and turned to follow him, I would urge you to repent. Your salvation has been provided through the person of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross on your behalf. He's taken the just judgment of God for you. He is the mercy that you are looking for. And he's calling you even now. Like Jonah, turn to him and repent. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He is listening, waiting for you to realize that you too are lost, just like I was in the woods, and he's eager to save. All hopes for your life, other than him, are just vain vanities. Let us pray together.